Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This morning, as we look at these three verses, we're going to see three different ways that Jesus' followers are uniquely equipped by the Word of God and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live wisdom-filled lives in our current day. And we're going to take a look at this in three different parts. First, as Jesus' followers, we have been given access to the wisdom of God. Secondly, we have been given opportunities to make a difference. And then third, we have been shown the will of God. So that's our outline for this morning. In verse 15, we're going to see that we've been given access to the wisdom of God. In verse 16, we're going to see that we've been given an opportunity to make a difference. And then in verse 17, we're going to see that we have been shown the will of the Lord. So we begin in verse 15, where we see that we have been given access to the, will, access to the wisdom of God. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Last week, we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, that we were instructed to walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.8 says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So both verses 8 and verse 15 gives us instructions on how we should walk. Verse 8 says we should walk as children of light. Verse 15 says we should walk not as the unwise, but as wise. And in fact, verses 8 and verse 15 are actually only two of five different times in the book of Ephesians that Paul actually admonishes us on a certain way of walking. But there is, I think, an important connection between what we see in verse 8 and verse 15, because there's a connection between what it means to walk as children of light and walking in wisdom. If if we are in darkness, it's going to be hard for us to make wise decisions, because in darkness, we can't see what's going on around us. We, We can't see the situation in front of us. So if we are in darkness, we will make unwise decisions. But if we're in the light, we can see what's going on around us. We can, we can see the path. We can know which way to go. And so if we're in the light, we can make wise decisions. And so it is because Jesus has called us out of darkness and into light that we have been given access to the wisdom of God. So therefore, we should walk as children of light. And we should walk not as the unwise, but as the wise. Now, this word wisdom sometimes will bring up in us a a very different picture than what the Bible is talking about here. You see, the Ephesians were part of a Greek culture, and and Greek culture was deeply valued, the idea of wisdom. The Greeks were well known for their philosophers, such as Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. So a lot of times when we think of wisdom, we immediately imagine some ancient Greek in a toga, you know, kind of spouting off deep thoughts and pondering the mysteries of the universe. But, but that's not the idea of biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is not having an advanced university degree in a philosophy. Biblical wisdom is the ability to apply your knowledge with skill. Biblical wisdom is application-oriented. It's taking knowledge and putting it into practice. Biblical wisdom is more about skill for living and discernment than it is about intellectual brilliance or academic degrees. And that kind of wisdom is available to Jesus' followers because we have been given the Word of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
In Ephesians 1.7, Paul prays for his readers that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of the revelation in the knowledge of him. See, God has made his wisdom readily available to us. It's found in the Bible. It's found in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So if we want to know how to live as wise, not as unwise, if we want to understand wisdom, we shouldn't first go to books or podcasts or the television or social media. The place we need to go first to is God's word. And if we need more wisdom, all we need to do is ask. Because James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. As Jesus followers, all we have to do is ask for wisdom. And then through his word and through the spirit, the heavenly father will generously give to us the wisdom we need in order to navigate through life today. The challenge is that sometimes it can be difficult to discern if something is really wise or not, if it's actually truly wisdom from God. But James chapter 3 helps us to sort this all out. In James chapter 3, the Bible contrasts spiritual wisdom, which comes from above, with wisdom that's unspiritual that comes from here on the earth. And in verse 17 of James chapter 3, James describes this spiritual heavenly wisdom. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. So how are we to discern if what we're being told is wise or unwise? Well, we look to the application of that, of that. We can tell if something we're being told is wise or unwise by what it leads us to. Because if wisdom is from above, then it's going to drive us towards being pure and being peaceable and gentle and open to reason, being full of mercy and good fruits, being impartial and sincere. And so if that's what it means to be wise, then to be unwise is just the opposite. Because if being wise is pure, then being duplicitous is being unwise. If being wise is peaceable, then being contentious is unwise. If being wise is gentle, then being harsh is unwise. If being wise is open to reason, then being stubborn is unwise. If being wise is being full of mercy and good fruits, then being judgmental is unwise. If being wise is being impartial, then being prejudiced is unwise. And if being wise is sincere, then being flippant is unwise. So if what you're reading and what you're listening to about the pandemic or racial justice or anything else, if that is leading to you towards being duplicitous, contentious, harsh, stubborn, judgmental, prejudiced, and flippant, then you're not following the wisdom of this world. You're following the wisdom of this earth. But for us, may we look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And as Jesus followers, we have been uniquely equipped by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to live wisdom-filled lives because we have been given access to the wisdom of God. Well, not only have we been given access to the wisdom of God, but we have also been given an opportunity to make a difference. Take a look back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. In this verse, Paul tells us that part of wise living is making the best use of our time. 
So what does Paul mean when he says this? Well, to dig into this, I want to give you four truths about the nature of time. Four truths about the nature of time. And the first is this, that time is costly. Time is costly. I just read verse uh, 16 from the English Standard Version. And while the ESV is usually a a very literal translation, in this verse, the ESV actually doesn't give us a literal rendering of the original Greek. Uh, I found a, a better, more literal rendering in an older translation, the King James Version. Listen to me as I read the King James Version of this verse. It says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I love that phrase, redeeming the time. You know, to redeem something is is to buy something. However, normally when we talk about buying time, uh, it's normally kind of in a negative or a reactive way. You know, when we say we need to buy some time, it's usually because we've procrastinated or because we've been delayed, and so now time is in short supply. But redeeming the time is not that at all. It's It's not reactive in the sense that we have to hoard it because it's in short supply. Rather than re- rather redeeming the time is proactive. It's saying that we need to take initiative in order to use time to its fullest purpose. Because redemption is not just buying something. It's buying something for the purpose of setting it free. Redemption is the picture of going and buying a slave off the slave market so that you can set that slave free. And that's why the Bible uses the term redemption to explain what Christ has done for us upon the cross. Before Christ, we were all enslaved to sin, but Jesus bought us from the slave market of sin through the payment of his blood on the cross. And in the same way, to redeem time means that we want to buy it back so that we can liberate it from the evil that dominates these days. But here's the deal. Redemption is costly. For Jesus to redeem us cost him his very life. And so to redeem time is going to cost us something as well. If we're going to make the best use of our time, it means we're going to have to give up some of our time for ourselves. If we're going to make the best use of our time, it means we're going to have to give up our precious me time. So let me ask you, are we using our time in a manner which promotes the kingdom of God? Are we using our time in a manner that is spreading the gospel to the world? Or are we spending all of our time just binge watching Netflix? Because time is costly. Not only is time costly, but number two, our time is now. Our time is now. You know, the past is already gone. There there is nothing about, we can't do anything about what's happened in the past. And the future's not here yet. So there's really no guarantee about what the future is going to bring. The only aspect of time that we can affect is this very narrow slice of time known as the present, which means our time is now. The only time that's available for us to redeem is this present moment. We we can't go back to yesterday and redeem it. We, We can't choose to redeem 1619. God isn't calling us to fight the battles of the 19th or the 20th century. The time that's available for us to redeem is the time we live in right now. And people, God has chosen us for this time. The issues and the problems of today are the opportunities that God has given to this generation. Wishing that we lived in a different time is pointless. And when we start pining for simpler days of of years gone by, when we start waxing nostalgic for the good old days, then we are in danger of missing the opportunity that God has given to us to make a difference today. Likewise, there's this temptation for Christians to look longingly into the future at the time when Christ will return. Now, 
for each of us, there should be a certain longing for this day. At the end of the book of Revelation, the apostle John, he says, come Lord Jesus, come. And I tell you, that resonates with me. It, I, I long eagerly for the day when my Savior will return and he will make all things right again under, under his righteous reign. But we can also become so focused on the future of Christ's return that we miss the opportunity that God has given to us in the present. See, the hope of Christ's imminent return shouldn't cause us to just bide our time until he arrives. Instead, if Christ's return really is imminent, how much more then should that motivate us to, to seek to bring the gospel to a dying and hopeless world? People, I want you to see Ephesians 5.16 from a lot, much larger context. When Paul says that we should be making the best use of our time, he's not merely suggesting that you go out and buy a day timer or that you learn some time management skills. He, he's not admonishing us to stop procrastinating, even, even those, those are good things. But rather, what Paul is doing is he's calling us to seize every moment for the sake of the kingdom of God. In the book of Esther, the king of Persia has been manipulated into passing a law which will bring about persecution of the Jews. And so a Jew by the name of Mordecai goes to Queen Esther, who happens to be his niece. And Queen Esther has been keeping it a secret from the king that she is a Jew. And so Mordecai goes to Queen Esther and he says this in Esther 4.14. He says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Our temptation, my temptation, in these, in these crazy times is to just hunker, our, hunker down and to bide our time until Jesus returns. But like Esther God has placed us into this moment. People, we have been called for such a time as this. We don't get to pick the times in which we live. God does. And God has chosen to put you and me into this time and to address these issues that are before us now. God has chosen the church living today to explain how the gospel applies to a world affected by a global pandemic and a world affected by racial injustice. We didn't pick these issues. God has picked these issues. And so these are our issues today, not because we want to deal with them, but because God has called us to such a time as this. Our time is now. Number three, the times are evil. The times are evil. In Ephesians 5, 16, we're to make the best use of our time, it says, because the days are evil. The Bible divides time into two ages. There's first what Galatians 1.14 calls this present evil age. That's the age we live in right now. That's the age of the fall. That's, that's the age that has been corrupted by sin. But there's a second age that's yet to come. It's called the age to come. And that's when Jesus will return and he'll make all things right. And the age that we've been called to redeem is not the age to come. Jesus will take care of that. We've been called to redeem this present evil age. And so we have to remember that in this present age, time itself is not merely neutral. In our present age, time itself will degrade into sinful corruption. You know, if you leave your garden untended, over time it's going to become overcome with weeds. And in the same way, time is subject to the same principle of entropy during this age. 
If we do not proactively attend to the time at hand, it will overcome us. And we will have found that we have wasted our time on selfish and sinful pursuits. See, here's the thing. Very few of us really plan to do evil. Uh, very few of us will, will get out our daytimer and say, well, tomorrow about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, looks like I got a little free time. I, I think that's when I'm going to commit some sin. Uh, we, don't, we don't think that way. We, we don't plan out our evil, but because the days are evil, if we don't proactively plan to use that time for good, those times will still degrade into sin. When Paul says that the days are evil, he is saying that left alone, our days don't trend towards good and pursuing righteousness. Instead, left alone, our days are going to tend towards wasting away, bring us towards sin. Our days will waste away to where we look back and all we did was watch cat videos on YouTube all day. So we must buy back time from that trend towards sin. And we must proactively reclaim the time for the glory of God. We must plan to do what's right. We must take initiative to do what's right. Because if we don't, entropy will cause time to degrade into sin because the times are evil. So time is costly. Our time is now. The times are evil. And finally, time is limited. Time is limited. One of the reasons why we need to make the best use of our time is because our time on this earth is limited. In Psalm 90, uh, Psalm 90 is a song written by, the, by Moses. And this, listen, listen to what he says in Psalm 90, verse 10, about time. He says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is saying that if you want a wise heart, you need to begin with the understanding that your time is limited. If you're lucky, you get to live to the age of 70. If you're particularly healthy and strong, maybe 80. But even those who live to the age of 100 do not escape this reality, that in comparison to eternity, our lives are incredibly short, and they are nothing but toil and trouble, and soon they're gone, and we fly away. Only a fool thinks he's going to live forever. Only a fool refuses to come to terms with their own mortality. And only when we realize that time is limited will we begin to use our time wisely. Time is costly. Time is now. The times are evil and our time is limited. So let's redeem the time. Because as Jesus followers, we have been given an opportunity to make a difference. Finally, Glenn, let's take a look at verse 17 where we're going to see that we've been shown the will of the Lord. Therefore, it says in verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 17 begins with a warning not to be foolish. And the word foolish here is actually a stronger word than the word unwise in verse 15. Uh, the foolish person isn't just ignorant or uneducated. The fool actively pursues his folly. And the Bible has a lot to say about foolishness. In fact, the book of Proverbs paints for us a great portrait of the fool. Among other things, the book of Proverbs tells us that a fool lives recklessly. A fool flaunts his foolishness. A fool likes to hang out with other fools. A fool hates wisdom. But I think the best description of a fool comes in Proverbs 10, verse 23, where it says, Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. 
See, a fool treats wrongdoing like it's just a joke. A fool doesn't take sin or injustice or lawlessness seriously. The fool just lives life as if there's no consequences to their foolish behavior. And in some sense, that really is the, the final definition of foolishness, living life without regard to the consequences. Note, however, how Paul contrasts foolishness with understanding the will of the Lord. Because if doing wrong is a joke to a fool, then understanding and obeying the will of the Lord is wisdom. Now, we need to spend a little bit of time talking about what we mean by the will of the Lord. Because God's will is one of those Christianese terms that we throw around a lot without really thinking about it. And as a result of that, there's a lot of misguided thinking about what the will of the Lord really is. So I'm going to give you three quick clarifying statements on the will of the Lord. And the first is this that the will of Lord is just all about pleasing God. The will of the Lord is just about pleasing God. You know, most of the time when I hear people say that they're seeking God's will, it's when they're trying to make a major life decision and they want to know what God wants them to do. So should I go to grad school or should I take this job? Should I buy a house? Should I continue renting? Should I, should I move here or should I move there? But you know, the term, the will of the Lord is never used in that context in the Bible. And it's not what Paul has in mind here in Ephesians chapter 5. Instead, the Bible always relates God's will to our moral choices and growing in Christ-like character. Kevin DeYoung states it this way in his book, Just Do Something. DeYoung says, The decision to be in God's will is not the choice between Memphis or Fargo or engineering or art. It's the daily decision we seek, we face to seek God's kingdom or ours to submit to his lordship or not, to live according to his rules or our own. The question God cares about most is not where should I live, but do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind? And do I love my neighbor as myself? You see, seeking God's will is not as much about figuring out what life choices will bring me the biggest blessing from God. Rather, seeking God's will is figuring out what day-to-day -day choices are going to please God the most. In Hebrews 13, 20, the author prays this, Now may God equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To do God's will is to do that which is pleasing in his sight. And that's something we saw last week in Ephesians 5, 10, where we were told to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because the will of the Lord, it just comes down to pleasing God. Secondly, the will of the Lord is not a secret. He's made it known to us. To try to determine God's will, we're not trying to seek some hidden knowledge. We don't need to practice divination or, or understand some opaque omen from the Lord. In fact, Deuteronomy 30.12 describes the imminence of God's will like this. In Deuteronomy 30.12, it says, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who shall ascend to heaven for, for us to bring it down to us that we might hear it or do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. God's will is not far off. It's, it's not high up in heaven. It's not across the sea. God's will is near to us because God has already shown us what pleases him through his word. And the Bible very unambiguously declares the will of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says that God's will is that we should live sanctified holy lives and lives free from sexual immorality. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17 says that it's God's will that we should rejoice, pray, and be thankful people. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 says that it's God's will that we should walk in a worthy manner and bear good fruit. So if we want to know God's will, let's start with what he's already told us through the scriptures. Because the will of the Lord is not a secret. He's already made it known to us through his word. Third, the will of the Lord is not a matter of feeling or emotion, but of understanding and obedience. You know, when it comes to determining God's will, I'll often hear Jesus followers say things like, well, I just feel like the Lord is leading me to do this or that. But the Bible never speaks of God's will coming to us through a feeling or an emotion. In fact, the Bible states that God's will comes to us through the discerning of our minds. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we want to discern God's will, it begins with our mind being renewed by the Holy Spirit. And then once we have a renewed mind, we can judge whether or not something is in God's will off this litmus test. Is it good? Is it acceptable? Or is it perfect? And yet just knowing God's will is not sufficient. Understanding God's will is more than just a cognitive process. It requires application. It requires obedience. We have to put it into practice before we can honestly say that we understand the will of God. Because God's will is not a matter of feeling or emotion, but of understanding and obedience. And so as Jesus followers, we are uniquely equipped by God's word and by the Holy Spirit to live wisdom-filled lives. Why? Because we've been shown the will of the Lord. So how does any of this help us during this current cultural crisis? Because if I'm honest with you, I've been spending the last couple of weeks, you know, looking at these three verses and studying them, and I'm still tired, I'm still confused, and I'm still fearful of all that's going on in our world. So how am I to translate what I've been teaching here from Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, and turn that into the encouragement I need to stay in the fight, to keep pursuing wisdom, to try to make a difference, to keep seeking the will of the Lord? And as I was thinking about this and praying over this very question, I was reminded of a passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, back in the Old Testament. And to give you some context to 1 Chronicles 12, uh, the Israelite king, King Saul, has died. And it was well known that the prophet Samuel had anointed David to be the next king. But you have to understand that David was not a descendant of King Saul. He was not part of the royal family. He was an outsider. So there was no guarantee that David was going to be made king by the nation of Israel, even though he was the Lord's anointed. And so there was a concern about that. However, everything changed when an army of men consisting of armed troops from every tribe of Israel came to David and they threw their support behind him for him to become the king. And when we get to 1 Chronicles 12, it lists various tribes in the army who supported David. And I want you to listen how the chronicler describes the armed men who supported David, and particularly the armed men from the tribe of Issachar. I'm going to pick it up in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 23. It says, These are the number of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him, according to the word of the Lord. And then it goes through and it lists all the armed men from the different tribes. And he gets to the tribe of Issachar in verse 32. It says, From Issachar, men who understood the times 
and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. From Issachar, the men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. The men of Issachar understood that moment in Israel's history. They understood what was happening politically and socially and and spiritually. But not just that, they knew what they needed to do. And it is my desire, my prayer, is that God would make me a man of Issachar. I want to be a man who understands the times and who knows what the two do. And that's my prayer for us as a church as well, that people would say of those of us from Ecclesia that we are men and women who understand the times and we know what the church to do. Does that mean it's, it's easy to discern what's wise and unwise? No. It is difficult to discern the times. It's hard to know what to do. But here's what we do know. That if we are followers of Jesus, we have been uniquely equipped with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to live wisdom-filled lives. Because we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of light. Because our minds have been transformed. We've been transformed from the futility of our minds to a place where now, because of the Holy Spirit in us, we can know the very wisdom and the will of God. And if after that, we still lack wisdom, all we need to do is pray. Because it says, if any of us lacks wisdom, let us ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Let's pray.